0: Oh, good. Okay, Nehemiah 3. uh, For those of you who have been following along in our reading guide, you read Nehemiah 3, and I know uh, in the hallways here at the preschool, some of the folks that go to our church, they said, Keith, what in the world are you going to preach on in Nehemiah 3? Because if you read Nehemiah 3, you know that it is just a list of names, right? It's just a list of names. So we're going to read that. I had every ambition this morning to read the Chapter in its entirety. Um, but I think you will kind of get the gist of where we're heading if we just cover half of the chapter. Is that okay with you guys this morning? If we just read half of it? Good. Okay. The other part of it, in, in any speech class that you take, uh, they tell you not to reveal uh, your weaknesses before you speak. But one of the weaknesses that I have, so I'm going to break that rule, kind of the first rule of speech club, right? I'm going to break that rule this morning. I, I don't speak Hebrew. Okay, and the the names in this passage can be a little bit odd if you've read through them. And so I'm going to do my best to read through these names with you this morning. Forgive me, okay? If, if you know Hebrew in the room, please forgive me because I'm probably going to butcher a few of them. Uh, but I'm sure you have in your reading as well. So uh, we're going to read this together, God's Word, beginning in Nehemiah chapter 3. We're going to go, I think, to verse uh, 14, or maybe when I run out of breath, one of those. Eliashib the high priest and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated as far as the Tower of Hananel. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zachar, son of Imri, built next to them. The fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Ahasena. They laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Merimuth, son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, repaired the next section. Next to him, Meshelam, son of Barakiah, the son of Meshazabel, made repairs. And next to him, Zadok, son of Banna, made, also made repairs. The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. The Jeshonah gate was repaired by Joyada, son of Paseah, and Meshulam, son of Besadiah. They laid its beams and put its doors with their boats and bars in place. Next to them, repairs were made by men from Gibeon and Mitzpah, Melatiah of Gibeon and Jadon of Maranoth, places under the authority of the governor of Trans-Euphrates. Uziel, son of Herahiah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired the next section. And Hananiah, one of the perfume makers, made repairs next to that. They restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Rephiah, son of Hur, ruler of the half-district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section. Adjoining this, Jediah, son of Harumaph made repairs opposite his house, and Hattush, son of Hashabaniah, made repairs next to him. Malchijah, son of Harim, and Hashub, son of Pahath-Moab, repaired another section and the tower of the ovens. Shalom, son of Halesh, ruler of the half-district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section with the help of his daughters. The valley gate was repaired by Hanun, and the residents of Zenoah, they rebuilt it and put its doors with their bolts and bars in place. They also repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as, this is the name of my favorite uh, gate in Nehemiah, the dung gate. <laughs> the dung gate was repaired. Balmachijah, son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth Hecarim, he rebuilt it and put its doors with their bolts and bars in place. This is The word of the Lord. I think I should get a hand for getting through that one. I would have expected a standing ovation if I read the whole chapter, right? (laughs) And I need a drink. What's in a list of names? What in the world are we going to do with this passage? What is in a list of names? See, I find myself reading the Bible... And a list of names pops up when we're reading the Bible, right? You're going through, there's a lot of them. You go, you read scripture, there's a lot of list of names kind of strategically placed throughout scripture. And uh, when a list of names pops up, sometimes I, I think awesome because I'm in my daily reading plan and if it's a list of names, then I can just kind of skip past it and go to the next section. I'm going to get my reading done a little bit quicker today. Anybody can relate to that? One person, good. One person telling the truth in here. In this list of names, we could dive deep into three leadership principles for everyday life, Uh, a kind of God's little instruction book for life approach. It's clear that Nehemiah does this. He hands off tasks, right? He's a delegator. We see that in this passage. Uh, He was inspirational. He inspired these people to work, Uh, and he was organized. He organized rebuilding these walls, and we'll learn next week that they did it rapidly, rapidly. And archaeology backs that up because they've unearthed some of these walls and they they acknowledge that there's walls in Jerusalem that were kind of hastily put together. They could tell that they were put together fast. So we know that this passage is true within history. So we could take that approach this morning that Nehemiah was a great delegator. He was inspirational and he was organized. Now go out into the world and be a great delegator, be a good inspirational leader, and be organized. Those are good principles. But I think we need to go a little bit further than that. Uh, It would have been perfectly acceptable as I was breaking these passages up, as I was studying for uh, this series, to just lump this chapter in with another uh, chapter, maybe chapter four, and just skip over the list of names. And yet I believe that these types of chapters point to something greater than just A few simple instructions for life that we find in in our three points of leadership for Nehemiah. They point to more than just scanning past them, although I've been guilty of that approach more so than not, right? Just kind of skipping past the list of names. But here's the bottom line. This is a basic Christian belief that we have as followers of Christ, is that the Bible is God's word, that it's infallible, and it's inerrant. The Bible is God's word. It's infallible and inerrant. And so with that principle, nothing here is by mistake. Nothing here is by mistake. Through the power of the Spirit, Scripture teaches us, through the power of the Spirit, God intended all of the words on the pages to be there. God intended for these words to be etched in Scripture. Scripture. For all followers of Christ to read, they're not there by mistake through the power of the Spirit. And the beauty of it, too, is that we have the human authors touch on each and every page. We see their their personality. We see the way they write. But all under the inspiration of God. God intending for each word to be on every page, even a list of names in the Bible. And so our foundational truth this morning is this. Were some of you cheating and looking at this already and writing down? No, 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 no. I saw a few of you peeking up there already. Our foundational truth this morning is this. The whole Bible is useful and points to a greater storyline found in Jesus. And this, the Bible is one story. It's a bunch of books, but it is one unfolding storyline. The whole Bible is useful and and points to a greater storyline found in Jesus. The Bible is one story. Paul says this to Timothy. Paul raises up this leader, Timothy. Timothy becomes a pastor under Paul's leadership. And Paul tells Timothy this in the New Testament. He says this in 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17. All scripture is God-breathed. Okay, that's where I got that this morning. I didn't just pull that out of the sky that the Spirit... Uh, influenced the the human authors to put down exactly what he wanted on the pages. Scripture says that, that all Scripture is God-breathed, all, and is useful for what? For teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work, even a list of names. Is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. It's not an accident that these names are here. They are a road marker to something greater, a greater storyline, a storyline which culminates in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Luke 24, 45 says this, this is Jesus instructing his disciples. He says, then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. Now, what was the scriptures at this time? What was the scriptures at this time? What we have as the Old Testament. And so Jesus opens their minds so that they can understand the scriptures and can understand that the scriptures all point to who? Jesus. Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Every page of the Old Testament points to Jesus. In the New Testament, we have the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They all talk about the life and work of Jesus. And then the epistles, so all the letters in the New Testament from Paul and Peter and James and John, they all look back to who? Jesus. Old Testament points to Jesus, the Gospels talk about Jesus, the New Testament letters look back to Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's all about him. And lastly, the Bible is one continuous story. Even though we have many books telling their own stories, they have one common thread. Who is the common thread throughout all of these stories? Jesus. Tim Keller says this. It, the Bible, comprises a single story telling us how the human race got into its present condition and how God, through Jesus Christ, has come and will come to put things right. It's all about Jesus Christ. The Bible is is one continuous story. It unveils God's redemptive plan. And as we approach Scripture, as you approach Scripture, as you... Read your Bible day in and day out. I urge you in the pages of Scripture to look for Jesus. Look for what he's teaching you in passage after passage after passage. Are there great applications in the Bible? Yes. Are there great moral teachings in the Bible? Yes. Are there great instructions in the Bible? Yes. But the greater purpose of Scripture is this. To reveal God and his redemptive purpose found in who? Sunday school answer, Jesus Christ, right? It's all about Jesus. And we can't lose sight of that, Christians, because all too often we get into the Bible and we want God, to, just tell me how I'm supposed to be. Tell me how I'm supposed to act. Tell me what boxes I'm supposed to check to be good and we're all fine. But God says, no, you need to look to Christ constantly, constantly. Because he's all throughout the scriptures, he's written on every page, every area, every passage pointing to Jesus. It's all about him. The Bible is one continuous story. It unveils God's redemptive plan. And again, look for Jesus in all of those passages. Find him in there. Find how the Bible is pointing to him. And I guarantee you this, your life will be so enriched because you're finding Christ everywhere all throughout the pages of Scripture. Now, here's the important message that we find in this daunting list of names we have a message of unity. It's the message of unity. There's a key set of words that we find all throughout this passage. A couple of examples there in your notes. Imri built what? Next to them. And next to him, Zadok, son of Banna, next to them, right? Next to them, next to them, next to them, next to them. Time after time after time. You see the chapter circles all the way around the walls of Jerusalem saying this person was working, and then next to them, this person was working, and then next to them, this person was working. It's a message of unity. The passage dances through the perimeter wall of Jerusalem. Various workers, and here's the thing, they're all different. You don't find one time in there that that there's a worker that's the skilled masonry, that's, that's the wall builder, do you? Who is it? It's the priest. It's the perfume maker. It's the common person. It's some guy's daughters working on the wall. Workers from every class, profession, family, and geographic location are represented in the list of names. It says the men of Jericho. Okay? Jericho is 15 miles from Jerusalem. And yet the men of Jericho make their way down to Jerusalem to build walls around a city what, that they don't even live in. That's the work of God bringing followers of Christ. That's, we can see this in the church. Followers of Christ from far together for one mission, one work. That's how we see the building of this wall pointing to Christ. It's a message of unity. They're all working towards the common goal of rebuilding the wall. They're unified. Again, priests, skilled workers, common men, um, women doing the work of the ministry, people who have come from a long distance, the men of Jericho, all coming together, and they're unified, right? Unified with a common goal. What's a major message that we find all throughout the New Testament when you read the epistles? starts with a U. It's a message of unity. The authors push time and time and time again. Church, be unified. Be unified. Be unified. And we see this in types and shadows here as God's people come together to build a wall for their protection. The one thing I want to caution against is the difference between unity and uniformity. Okay? Unity and uniformity. So they came together together unified towards one goal. What was the goal? Rebuild the walls. Okay? But they weren't necessarily uniform, right? They were all different people, different backgrounds. Don't mistake in unity as as uniformity. They weren't all of same mind. They weren't all in agreement on everything. We find that the men of Tekoa didn't even come. The nobles didn't even come. There's always a couple turkeys, right, that hang back that don't participate. It's highly likely that many of them possibly didn't even like their leader, Nehemiah. And yet they were still what? Unified because they had a mission. The mission was to restore the walls of Jerusalem. This is what I want to say. It's okay if we don't agree on everything. We're all different people. My hope is that the body of Christ is made up of different people in this room. That we could see white people, that we could see Hispanic people, that we could see black people, that we could see uh, different people on different places on the social ladder. Maybe some that are not economically well off, maybe some that we would term as rich and well off. Maybe some with different religious backgrounds. All coming together. We're not uniform, but we're what? Unified. Unified. Under the banner of who? Jesus. Jesus Christ. And this is the goal that Nehemiah is working towards. I want you to keep this in mind this morning. It comes from chapter 2 and verse 17. He says this. He says, Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in, he uses this word, disgrace. That was the mission. Come, let us rebuild the wall in Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. You see, we no longer build walls to protect us. Okay, one of our ministry objectives is not to go out here on Preston Highway and build a big block wall to keep everybody out, is it? No, we want people to come in. We no longer build walls to protect us. The church is not a walled community. We're not protecting ourselves from the world. Jesus commissioned all of his followers, if you read at the end of Matthew 28, to go and make what? Disciples. The church must be two things. It must be a drawing force. It should be light, salt and light in the community. Okay, a light attracts things. Just sit on your back porch for five minutes and turn the light on at night. And what's going to come? All the bugs. All the bugs are going to come flying in. There may or may not be a video of me screaming and running from a June bug from when I first moved out here. The church must be a drawing force, a light in the community in which it serves. But it doesn't just stop there. We don't just stay here and put the light up. Jesus said what? Go. Go and make disciples. We're going into all the world to proclaim the gospel message. Now, I will say this. Not many of us are called to go into like the foreign mission field. There's people that are called for that. But most of us are called to be on mission where? Right here. Wherever you live. In Shepherdsville, in Mount Washington, in Hillview, in Jefferson County. Wherever that place is that you call home and your home is, Jesus has said, hey, go and make disciples in that place. Go. So we're both, the church is both. It's both a light, an attractive light of love and grace and mercy and a message of redemption, but it is also missional. It is going into the community in love and grace. We're going into all the world to proclaim the gospel message. And here is the gospel. That the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ saves us from our sins. if We place our faith and trust in that message. To remove what? Remember that word disgrace? To remove the disgrace of sin. Jesus accomplished that on the cross. He removed the disgrace of our sin. Nehemiah says this, come let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. Church, we are no longer in disgrace because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross because he came and he lived the perfect life for us. And he walked in our place and he was placed on the cross as a sacrifice and he shed his blood to cover our sin. And on the third day he raised from the dead. To what? Remove our disgrace. Not because of anything that we have done, but only because of what he has done. And simply all we need to do is place our faith and trust in that message in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and we will be saved. Our disgrace no longer viewable to God the Father because God the Father looks at us and he sees the righteousness of his Son, the holiness of his Son, our disgrace covered. The walls of salvation removing our disgrace through Jesus Christ. Sin has invaded every aspect of our lives. Every person has been affected by sin. And the gospel does this. It removes our disgrace. Through Jesus, our disgrace is removed. And those who are in Christ must be unified behind that message. That's our unifying work. It's the banner we raise It's not about us. It's not about my agenda. It's not about your agenda. It's about the agenda that Jesus Christ has for this church in being salt and light and being sent into the community with the good news of what? The gospel. We have something special that can remove the disgrace of the people. Can cover their sin. And I want to urge you this morning... Don't bring this message of unity with a hammer. We don't need to bring it with a hammer. But rather we bring it in love, in grace, and mercy as we engage with people that are lost, who are not followers of Christ. We don't need to be a hammer. Christ came to people right where they were at. Right, We say he, he left the 99 to go get the one. He met the woman at the well and he met her need. He didn't come out of the gate saying, Hey, you're a sinner and you're sleeping with a bunch of different men. He came to her and said, I have water for you in which you will never thirst again. I have a gift for you. And I know what can cover your disgrace. It is me, Jesus Christ, coming to her right where she was at. Church, let's be like that. Let us be like that, that we have a message of of grace and love and mercy because that's exactly how Jesus has come to us. He didn't come to us with a hammer. He came to us in love, inviting us in to his family. And I want to encourage you, meet people where they are. I want to encourage you in this, grow relationally with them before you start calling them out on their stuff. Don't bring a hammer. Bring love. Invite them into your home. Have them over around the dinner table. Meet their needs. Show them the living water Jesus Christ in which they will never thirst again. Obviously, sin is going to be a discussion. We don't hide that. We make that very clear here in this church when we preach the gospel each and every week. And yet, when we approach people who are far from Christ, love them right where they are, walk with them, take time. Here's the thing. We can rest in the sovereignty of God in this. That God in his due time is going to move and is going to work. You can be confident in that. Meet people where they are. Love them where they are. And share the good news. Do not be ashamed of the good news. Ephesians 4.3 says this. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Let's be a people of peace and love, and let's be unified behind our work as evangelists, as missionaries sharing the good news with the lost in our community. Our next point, every member ministry. What does this passage teach us? It teaches us about every member ministry. You see Nehemiah out there working on the wall by himself? Is he by himself in this passage? No. Everybody's doing their part. We get a picture of the church needing every member, everybody who calls this place their church home, coming together, united, behind the common purpose of this place being salt and light and being able to engage our community with the love of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 4, 11 to 13 says this, So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to what? To equip his people for works of service. So that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son and become mature, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. I love this passage because it it talks in construction terms, doesn't it? We're all being built up. You get this idea of, of a building being built up. You see, the work did not rest solely on Nehemiah's shoulders. Every member of the community took part in the work. Practically, the work of the church cannot just rest on a few men and women. Everyone, church, hear me, everyone has to pitch in everyone has to pitch in and i can promise you this it's an incredible privilege that we get to serve the body of christ we can illustrate this perfectly in the mission of paul if you read through his letters when we look at at paul's work in spreading the gospel again did paul do everything himself Did he do everything himself? No. He went from town to town proclaiming the gospel, raising up leadership, equipping and then handing off leadership and moving on to the next place that God had called him to. The beauty of it is is that you see in his letters, as these established churches, these letters he writes back to them, equipping them, is that some of them, read 1 Corinthians, were kind of messed up, weren't they? Thank goodness, because we're kind of messed up too, aren't we? If we're honest, we're kind of messed up. And Paul has 1 Corinthians, and Corinthian church is kind of messed up. The beauty of it is, is that he entrusted that, that leadership there, and he delegated, and he handed off, and he went, and he said, God, I'm going to trust you, and I'm going to follow up, and I'm going I'm to do my work, I'm going to equip. And yet, that, that church, what? It won souls for Christ, Everything wasn't perfect. So many times we feel in the church, I think, that we have to get everything dialed in and everything perfect before we can go and do anything. Everything's got to be good. It's got to be looking good. Everything's got to be all right. Everybody has to be fully mature. No, God wants you right where you're at, and he's going to use you. Whether you're a new Christian, if you've been around here a while, wherever you're at, God wants to use you. Every member is part of this ministry. Paul maintained a hand in equipping, which we have preserved in his letters that make up much of the New Testament. We see him teaching his churches after he had left them. We see him teaching some of his churches that he indirectly had a hand in planting. So Colossians, he didn't start that church. Somebody else who was saved under his preaching started that church, and yet Paul viewed that as his church, and he what? He equipped them. He poured into them. And here's the thing, here's the reality, if Paul does not equip and people do not step up, Paul simply is able to lead what? One church. He has to stay there because he won't hand off any authority, he's not equipping anybody, nobody's stepping up, he only has one church, and if we carry this out historically, we're probably not here. Because Paul was was the missionary to the Gentiles. This church exists because of the the ministry of the Apostle Paul and obviously God's work. But if Paul does not follow the leading of the Spirit, we can carry that out to the end that, well, man, this church might not be here because he would have pastored just one church because he didn't equip anybody and he didn't delegate. He didn't hand off ministry and nobody was raised up. But we don't see that. We see Paul, under the power and inspiration of the Spirit, raising up leaders, equipping people in their imperfection. Paul, in his imperfection, doing the work of Christ, building the church, glorifying God. You see, Paul saw the the importance of equipping the people to carry out the work of the ministry. I want to say this, this This is a very personal point to me. As a preacher and a a minister and a pastor in this church, my job, my calling is to equip you. That's what scripture says, to equip you along with the elders to what? To carry out the ministry of the church. We need every person who considers North Bullock Christian Church their home to contribute to the ministry. We're unified behind contributing to building our wall. And our wall is this. This is one of the first ways that we can contribute through the proclamation of the gospel. God has called you to hear the word preached here and then to go out and to share the gospel with other people to love and serve and meet their needs, to desire to see lives transformed through that message. And again, we do this through our words, through relationships, and through serving this local expression of the church. God has called you to serve this place. Again, everyone is unified to build in Nehemiah. The priest, the skilled workers, the common folk, the people traveling from distances to lend a hand, all unified for the cause that Nehemiah has called them to. In addition to being unified behind one cause, they're each, if we read in this, they're each uniquely gifted. They're uniquely gifted. It's another lesson that we can draw from this. They're each uniquely gifted. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 124 to 6. He says, there are different kinds of gifts, but the same spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Now hear me, check this out. God has uniquely gifted each of you. Not only did the people in Jerusalem unify for the urgent work of rebuilding the wall, I would say our urgent work, our wall, is the proclamation of the gospel, so we're all unified behind that but they were also skilled in their own professions, right? Priests, perfume makers, common people. Each contributing to the community as God had gifted them. Each part was important. I mean, imagine if if the baker isn't baking, right? We have no cakes. What's the world without chocolate cake, right? They got to do their part. Each part is important. Each member is important. Hear me, church. Each of you is important to the ministry of North Bullock Christian Church. We need you. I want to encourage you to embrace the spiritual gift that God has given you. Hear this lesson. When you became a follower of Christ, when you placed your trust and faith in the message of the gospel, God did this to you. He imparted on you a spiritual gift for you to share within the ministry of this church. Did you know that? To share. I want you to embrace the spiritual gift that God has given you. And I want to encourage you to serve the church with that gift. Paul talks of it in light of us being the body of Christ, right? The body's made up of many parts. Now, I want you to kind of close your eyes and, and picture this. Picture a body working around, walking around and that body has no ears. It's deaf. It can't hear. Maybe that body doesn't have a leg. Maybe that body doesn't have an arm or a mouth. Is that body going to function correctly? The answer is no. Each of you has been imparted with a spiritual gift to contribute to the body. And when you don't serve in that way, it's like the body walking around with one leg or one arm or no mouth. The whole body coming together is is healthy. And God has called and equipped each of you uniquely with a spiritual gift to contribute to North Bullock Christian Church. You're uniquely gifted, and we need you. Lastly, we're united through holiness. We're united through the holiness of Christ. Not through our own holiness, but through redemption in Jesus. I'd like for you to turn to Isaiah uh, chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. God's word says this, in that day the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious and the fruit of the land will be the pride and glory of the survivors in Israel. Those who are left in Zion will remain in Jerusalem, will be called what? Holy. All who are recorded Among the living in Jerusalem, the Lord will wash away the filth of the woman of Zion. He will cleanse the bloodstains from Jerusalem by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of fire. Then the Lord will create over all of Mount Zion and over those who assemble there a cloud of smoke by day and a glow of flaming fire by night. Over everything, the glory will be a canopy, it will be a shelter and a shade from the heat of the day, and a refuge and a hiding place from the storm and the rain. Who is that canopy? Who's that canopy? It's God. It's God's Spirit. Who are the people in that city? Those who have been called into God's family. Those who have the Spirit of God within them. Isaiah says this, All who are recorded among the living. Church, if you're in Christ, you are living. We were cursed with death because of sin, and we have been reborn into the imperishable through Jesus Christ. You are alive in Christ before you were spiritually dead, but Christ has made you alive. He's given us this He's given us His holiness. We are under the glory of God, we are now God's temple. Remember, God's temple is what? It's where his dwelling was, where his spirit was dwelling. Where does God's spirit live now? In his people. We are under the glory of God. We are now God's temple, a place where his, his spirit dwells. It's no longer confined to a building, but it's within his people. And where his people gather, the church where his people gather, the Spirit of God is what? Is among them. The Spirit of God is in this room. And it's not because of anything that we have done, but because of the work of Christ and his perfect life, death, and resurrection that we can say this, we're holy. We're holy in Christ. Because of this holiness we're unified you see where this comes together we're unified behind one name it's the name of jesus christ we have unity in him we no longer have our own names but we have one name that brings life jesus we're followers of jesus we are his once we were identified by our race, by our economic status, by our jobs, but this is no longer because we're identified with Jesus Christ. We're called what? Christians. We're followers of Christ. Ephesians two nineteen to 22 says this. Consequently, you are no longer, did you hear that? No longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people. And also members of his household. Built on the foundation. I love this. Once again, that building, right? Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself. And he is what? He's the chief cornerstone. The building was was built off of that cornerstone. It was the most important stone in, in an ancient building project. That stone had to be right. And scripture tells us that Jesus is our perfect cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together. Listen to this. And rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. What was a temple? A place where God's spirit dwelled. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Church, this is about us. Unified through the spirit of God. Because of the work of Jesus Christ. God's dwelling is is among us. We were once foreigners and strangers, and God, in His great love, brought us in. We respond to this by being unified as the body of Christ with one goal, right? What's our goal? To share the gospel with the lost, to win souls to Jesus Christ to equip those who have been brought in to grow in Christ's likeness so we don't just strive for people to be saved, dunk them in a pot of water, and then let them go. No, we want them built up. We want them to learn to, Jesus says this in the Great Commission, obey. Obey all my commands. It's not just some frivolous, meaningless faith. God wants you to be transformed through the power of the gospel. And that transformation happens both through the power of the Spirit, but also through the people of God unified together, working together with our spiritual gifts, being built up on our cornerstone, Jesus Christ. We want to grow in Christ's likeness and obedience to his commands. And I would say the greatest of of those commands is this. Jesus himself said this we what? We love God and we love others. The greatest commandment. We love God so we're we're raising up followers of Christ who love God. I would say this, they show their love for God through loving other people. We show our love for God not by I can't run up to God and give him a hug. I can't give him a meal but I can show God that I love him by the way that I treat and love everybody around me. We love God by loving others. Do you see the connection of Jesus as our cornerstone? He's the one that we're built on top of. He's our foundation. He's our rock. He's our redeemer. He's the one that we remember each and every week. That's why when we gather, you're going to hear at some point in the sermon about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, because we have to constantly be reminded of this. Because it is both the message that is going to sanctify us, which means to make us more like Christ, and it's also the message that we need to be going and sharing with people who are lost in our community. It's the message that needs to be proclaimed in this room as there may be people that are coming in here who are hurting, who are broken, who are suffering, who are seeking after life in lifeless things in this world. And here is the message of truth, that Jesus died for you, that he loves you, and he wants to transform your life. He wants to give you a mission and a meaning. It's all about Jesus Even the list of names coming together, unified, building the wall. How can we relate to a passage like that? Because of the ministry of Jesus Christ. We can look to him as our chief cornerstone. We can look to him as our mission and purpose in bringing the gospel to the lost. We can look to him as our loving savior. Loving us and inviting us in. And as we respond this morning, I want us to be...